Well, it's great to be here again with you this morning. And uh, just before we get underway, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. It will be on the screen behind me uh, as well, but uh, it's always better if you turn in your Bible, you know where to find it then, and uh, you can follow along. Uh, I want to say that I did bring my books up this week. Uh, they are available on a uh, round post table out in the foyer. Um, uh, a suggested donation of $10, but this morning, because you're here, uh, I want to make a special uh, two for 20, okay? So that's just for you. You're welcome. You're welcome. May I get a little more light here? My eyes aren't great. All right. Lord, let there be light. In 1966, Oklahoma State University, their third-string quarterback, was President Lyndon Johnson's nephew, Randy Johnson. He was a mediocre quarterback on a mediocre team. Oklahoma State could be lifted, however, to legendary status if on the last game of the season they beat their arch-rival Oklahoma. In the final game, Oklahoma State was behind by six points, and, and to be honest, little hope remained that they would win with almost 80 yards to go and a torrential downpour taking place. Their mud-covered uniforms didn't look half as pitiful, however, as the look of despair on each of the players' faces. As a gesture of goodwill, their coach put in all the seniors on the last play of the game, and he told Randy remember, third-string quarterback, to call whatever play he wanted. The team huddled, and to the surprise of his players, Randy called play 13. It was a trick play that they'd never used in a game, and for good reason. It had never worked in practice. Then the impossible happened. Oklahoma State scored, won the game by one point, and the fans went wild. As they carried Randy, the hero of the game, off the field, his coach yelled to him, Why in the world did you ever call play 13? And Randy answered, Well, we were in the huddle, and I looked over and I saw Ralph. Tears running down his face, a senior, heartbroken, losing the last game of his career, and I saw that big eight on his jersey. And then I looked over and I saw Harry, and he was crying too, and I saw that big seven on his jersey. 
And I thought, I'm just going to add 8 and 7, and I called play 13. But coach shouted back, Randy, 8 and 7 don't equal 13, they equal 15. Randy reflected for a moment and answered back, you know, you're right, coach, and if I was half as smart as you, we would have lost the game. (laughs) Here's the point of the story. Sometimes logical answers aren't always right. When it comes to matters of faith, reason, more often than not, has to take a back seat to faith and God's leading. God doesn't want us, I want you to hear this, God doesn't want us to turn our brains off. I'm not saying that. But He does want us to live by faith. And Rarely does Christianity make sense to those who are unfamiliar with the upside-down ways of the kingdom. For instance, God's plan was by dying, His Son would provide salvation for our world. Now, friends, that simply doesn't make logical sense. The Bible says that it is foolishness to those who don't believe. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul immediately reminds us of our state before we came to faith. You know, I think it's good for us to look back to remember what we were like before we came to faith. It's a good motivation for me. I remember what I was like. I remember clearly what I was like. I was lost. I had an evil heart. The intentions of my heart were not good. And I didn't know how to change it. Paul says that we were dead. And he seems to contradict himself, for in the same sentence he tells us that while we were dead, Christ makes us alive. That those of us who believe come alive. And this actually helps to define our before Christ state. We were dead spiritually while at the same time living physically. Let's read Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 5. Paul says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. 
He is the Spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy that he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. What are the, what are the characteristics of spiritually dead people? If I could have any prop in the room this morning, I would have brought in a coffin with a body in it. You know, think about that for a moment. You could take that body and you could punch it with needles. You could hit it with a bat. It wouldn't respond. They are dead. Three words Paul uses to describe our spiritually dead state. First, we are disobedient. Verses 2 to 3a. Disobedience comes from the Greek word apatheia. And it means obstinate, rebellious, and disobedient obstinate. It means that we're stubborn wanting to go our own way, do our own thing, and as a result of our disobedience, we wander farther and farther from God. Secondly, Paul says that not only were we disobedient, but we were depraved. Now, you may not know what that word means. It means morally corrupt, wicked. You find this word in verse 3b. Paul uh, uh, uses uh, different words. The version we're using this morning, the NLT, uh, it, it says that in a slightly different way. Basically, Paul says they gratify the desires of their sinful nature. When a person is physically dead, they cannot respond to physical stimuli. They can't think, hear, or carry on a conversation. They can't eat, feel, taste, or touch. In the same way, before we come to Christ, we don't have spiritual stimuli. There is no way we can come to God on our own. He pursues us. God has not brought us to life we are without His Spirit, so our spiritual faculties are not functioning. But, 
We are all born the same way in this world. We're all born spiritually dead. Paul says we were by nature deserving of wrath. Because we were dead in our transgressions and sins, you see, God is holy and He cannot dwell in the presence of sin. Our relationship with God was broken when we sinned. Paul teaches we are following its desires and thoughts. In other words, spiritually dead people live to please the desires of their flesh. The wishes of our corrupt minds. Our actions are sinful because we feed our spiritual, sinful appetites. When I say depraved, I'm not saying that we live only doing evil or we're incapable of doing any good. You know, I've met people who lived a relatively good life, but they're not Christians. And they think that their good works will earn salvation for them. What I'm saying, and what the Scripture means when it says that we are depraved, it's saying that we are incapable of doing anything Good enough, good enough to earn salvation. Our world is filled with people who live good moral lives, but don't know God's Son. Thirdly, Paul says, not only are we disobedient, not only are we depraved, but we are doomed. The latter part of verse 3, Paul describes our pre-Christ state as by our very nature we were subject to God's anger or wrath. We were doomed to an eternity apart from God. Nothing we could do could earn our salvation. And if we stopped here, our cause would seemingly be hopeless. Hopeless. But it's not. That's when God shows up and His love rushes in like a flood and He makes a way. He makes a way. In eastern Africa, a troop of about 50 baboons made themselves at home right next to a farm. The baboons were amusing at first, but soon they began to wear out their welcome. Before long, they were ravaging the crops and helping themselves to any things they wanted. The frustrated farmers in the area made plans to have the animals destroyed. 
To do this, they set up cages with food in them. Their plan was to capture the baboons and then destroy them. Baboons, however, are pretty clever animals. Sensing that the cages were dangerous, they refused to go in. But the farmers were patient. After several days, one of the hungry baboons ventured into the cave and he sampled the food. And hey, it was, it was good. It was very good. And guess what? Nothing bad happened. The next day, the same baboon returned for more food. Other baboons kind of watched this, and soon they followed. And after a few days, the entire troop of baboons went into the cages to feast on the food. Rather than being afraid of the cages, the baboons started to kind of like them. For several weeks, the baboons went into the cages every day to eat. One day, however, the food was tied to the door latch. When the animals grabbed the food, the door of the cages slammed down. And at first, the baboons were kind of spooked. But not realizing that they had been caught... They just went about eating the food and finishing their meal. You know what? Sin is just like this. Deep down, we know that sin seeks to destroy us. But just like the food in the cage, it looks good. Listen. The Bible tells us that our adversary, the devil, is cunning, crafty. He doesn't give us garbage. He gives us something that looks appealing, that we want. But when we take it, it brings death. Paul says, in the midst of our disobedient, depraved, and doomed lives, Christ came. God loves us and calls us to himself. What is the remedy for our spiritually sin-filled lives? Well, it's Jesus. Nothing more. He offers to all of us who will receive Him, His sacrifice, a restored relationship with God and all the blessings that come with it, including an eternal home with Him. Let's... uh, Uh, Go back to Ephesians 2, and let's read verses 6 to 10. It says, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and sealed us 
with, or sorry, seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of his incredible wealth, of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Then verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So no, none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Paul says that we who trust Christ are resurrected. Verse 6a. We're resurrected with Christ. And by the way, that's not just talking about a bodily resurrection that will one day take place, but it's talking about our spirit inside that God raises us from the dead so that we have Christ living in us. Secondly, Paul says that we are rewarded through his incredible wealth, his grace and kindness toward us. And then... Finally, Paul says that we can't take recognition. We can't take recognition for it. As a Christian, you can't say, I'm a Christian because I'm a good person. I'm a Christian because I, I go to church. I'm a Christian because I, I give money to charities. None of those things makes you a Christian. Paul makes it clear it is by grace we are saved. You know what grace is? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. In other words, you didn't earn it. Someone once told me that if grace was an acronym, it would stand for God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, our sin made us deserve eternal separation from God. But He loved us so much that He sent His Son to pay the penalty for our sin and extend salvation to all who will receive it. It's a free gift. Sometimes when I'm talking to, to people, I, I, I explain it kind of like this. At Christmas time, you get a gift. It's got your name on it. It's under the tree. But that gift never actually becomes yours on you, until you pick that gift up, unwrap it, and claim it as your own. Paul makes it abundantly clear. 
in verse 8 and 9 that we cannot work our way into heaven. Do you know that true Christianity is the only faith in the world that teaches this? Every other religion in the world teaches that you have to earn your way to salvation by doing good things. Not true Christianity. You get it because it's a gift from God. I want to close with a true story of a potential youth worker. He wrote this. I left work early so I could have some uninterrupted study time right before the final in my youth issues class. When I got to class, everybody was studying, cramming for our final youth issues exam. The teacher came in and said that he would review with us for just a little bit before the test. We went through the review, most of it right in our study plan, but some of it sounded new. And in fact, it was new. And when we questioned the professor about it, he said it was in the book and we were responsible for reading the entire book. Well, we really couldn't argue about that. Finally, it was time to take the test. The, our professor handed out the test, but told us to leave the test face down on our desk until he gave further instruction. And when he instructed us to turn them over, every answer on the test was filled in. The bottom of the test page said, this is the end of the final exam. All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A. The reason that you pass the test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work that you did in preparation for this test did not help you get an A. You have just experienced grace. He then went around the room and asked each student individually, what is your grade? A. Do you deserve the grade you are receiving? Well, not really. How much did all your studying for this exam help you achieve your final grade. This student writes, Now, I'm not a crier by any stretch of the imagination, but I had to fight back tears when answering those questions and thinking about the creator of my soul. Our prof then said, 
I have tried to teach you all semester that you are a recipient of grace. I've tried to communicate to you that you need to demonstrate this gift as you work with the young people that you will in the future. Don't hammer them. They are not the enemy. And I have to smile because sometimes as a youth pastor it felt like that. He went on to say, help them for they will carry on your ministry if it is full of grace. Friends, grace is what we get from God as a free gift and God calls us to give that grace back to others. I want to just point out before we close what Paul said as his last verse, verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things God Sorry, so that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. What are you doing? What are you doing for God? It doesn't matter if you're old and it's difficult for you to do things. You can become a prayer warrior, and God knows we need them. It doesn't matter if you're a child here this morning or a teenager, you can live for God. I want to close by reading Ephesians 2, 12 to 14. Listen to these words, incredibly enriching by Paul. He says, In those days you were living apart from Christ, You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in His own body on the cross, He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Wow! Those are great verses that we can claim we are God's masterpiece. We've been created a new image to follow after and to serve our God. Worship team, would you come? And as we close this morning, I, just where you're at, I want you to thank God for the new creation He created in you and thank God for the works that He prepared long ago 
before you were born for you to do. 